Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to episode 299 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. For today's story, we head to Glasgow, where we return to a familiar theme of drug addiction and the dangers this can lead to, including in this week's case, murder. As always, let me begin by thanking all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That's Kaz and David O. Thank you so much for your support. Why not join our community by heading to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK charts were the Fugees with Killing Me Softly. In the US, it was That Crossroads from Bone Thugs and Harmony, personal favourite of mine. The best-selling album in Australia this year was Jagged Little Pill from Alanis Morissette, ironically, (laughs) or maybe not. In the news this month, the Nintendo 64 went on sale in Japan. The Kobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia killed 19 US servicemen. Independence Day starring Will Happy Slappy Smith, Bill Pullman and Jeff Goldblum premiered. And the UK government selected the Greenwich Peninsula site on the banks of the River Thames as the location for the Millennium Dome exhibition, which was set to open for the year 2000. If you're too young to recall this, don't worry, you really miss nothing of interest. Well, except an armed robbery. And in UK true crime news, an IRA bomb in Manchester wrecked the city centre, injuring over 300 people, but miraculously, considering the size of the bomb, nobody was killed. So did you get the month and year? It was June 1996. So for today's story, we head a little north of Manchester and into Scotland and Glasgow. In the summer of 1996, 26-year-old Jacqueline Gallagher was laid to rest at a quiet graveyard just outside Glasgow. As the mourners slowly moved away from the side of the grave, Jacqueline's boyfriend, Gordon Fraser, fell to his knees and sobbed uncontrollably. He was helped away by Jacqueline's stepdad to face those dreadful days and weeks straight after the funeral of a loved one. When life seems to be going on as normal for everyone around you, and you can't understand why or how life can ever be normal again. It was four weeks earlier that Jacqueline's body had been found in a lay-by near Bowling in Dumbartonshire, which is slightly west of Glasgow. It was wrapped in a curtain. She had suffered the most terrible death, having been strangled and battered repeatedly, with almost 120 injuries, including smashed cheekbones, knocked-out teeth, and a number of fractures to her skull and her jaw. The level of violence was shocking. At the time of her funeral, nobody had been arrested for her murder, but detectives believed that an S&M studded collar found close to her body was likely used to strangle her, and her terrible injuries looked as though they had been caused by being hit repeatedly with a heavy hammer. 
Some of those at the funeral blamed her death squarely at the hands of her boyfriend Gordon Fraser. He may not have killed Jacqueline, but her life changed forever the day they met, and not in a good way. When she met him, she was stunningly attractive and full of hopes and dreams for the future. She wanted to be a nurse and to help others. But Gordon was addicted to heroin and introduced her to that most terrible of drugs. We've heard many times on this podcast about lives ruined by heroin. Soon, she too was hooked on the drug, and with Gordon not working, she begged and borrowed from friends and family for funds to feed their habits. But when no more money was available, she became a sex worker on the streets of Anderston at the time Glasgow's red light district. In this period, on the main drag as it was known, there were lots of sex workers on the streets of central Glasgow, with an estimated 95% plus addicted to drugs. Jacqueline was utterly ashamed at what she was doing, and she still felt she could escape the situation she was in, turn a corner and get into nursing. Her family and friends didn't know how she was earning money, and her mum, Alice, knew she had some issues, but actually only found out when she died. In his sermon at Jacqueline's funeral, the Reverend Ian Curry spoke of the shock, suddenness and the brutality of her death. He asked the mourners not to make moral judgments about how she earned her money, sentiments I hope you would agree with. We all do whatever we need to do to earn cash at points in our lives and shouldn't judge others. Not even lawyers or politicians. In a way, this is the crime which makes victims of us all, he said. It puts those who work beside Jackie in fear. It reminds the rest of us just how uncaring our society can be when it places women in situations where this kind of hideous murder can take place. Jacqueline was generous and likeable, much loved by her family and friends. A young woman who enjoyed music, who was pretty and small and vulnerable. A young woman who found herself a victim of drugs. And, at the end, this woman, young, pretty, small and vulnerable, was a victim of a brutal murder. Detective Chief Inspector Jeanette Joyce, who was leading the investigation, attended the funeral and later said, This young girl has got to be laid to rest to ease some of the suffering of her family. We will find whoever killed Jacqueline, but we still need more help from the public. But in reality, she wasn't as confident as she sounded. Jacqueline was the seventh known sex worker to be killed in Glasgow in seven years in the 1990s. And the talk on the streets at the time was of a serial killer at large. Talk that the police understandably tried to dampen. But the killings of sex workers just kept on coming. In 1991, 23-year-old Diane McKinley was found dead in Pollock Park. And although two men were charged with her murder, they were later released because of a lack of evidence. In 1993, Karen McGregor, a 26-year-old mum of two, was strangled and her body was later found in bushes. Her husband Charlie was charged with her murder and faced trial, but the jury found the case against him not proven. Then in 1995, Leona McGovern suffered a terrible death when she was found dead in a city car park in Washington Street, just a couple of minutes' walk from Glasgow's red light district, where she'd been stabbed 17 times and throttled with a belt around her neck. A 22-year-old man was charged with murder, but the jury found him not guilty. The body of 34-year-old Marjorie Roberts was found floating in the River Clyde the same year. 
but detectives were unable to be sure she'd been the victim of a crime and pushed into the river, or whether she'd just suffered an accident and fallen. In 1996, 21-year-old Tracy Wilde was found beaten to death in her Glasgow flat. This murder remained unsolved until 2019, when 44-year-old Min Chen was arrested for assaulting Glasgow, and his fingerprints were found as being a match with the unidentified fingerprints from the murder scene back in 96. And then in 1998, 27-year-old Margot Lafferty was murdered by a customer buying sex from her. I've covered this story in an earlier podcast. 19-year-old Brian Donnelly, who was celebrating his birthday that day, was sent to prison for her murder in 2001. But back in 1996, detectives didn't think that Jacqueline had been the victim of a serial killer, and they once again reviewed the evidence in front of them. She was last seen alive in the early hours of the 24th of June, a Monday, at the corner of Bothwell Street and Blythewood Street in the city's red light area, having earlier taken a bus there, arriving at about 1.20am. She'd been due to meet her mum that day, but the planned phone call to arrange their meeting never came. It was 10am the next morning when her partially clad body was found by a passerby beside the old Kirkpatrick to Bowling Road. The assumption was that she'd been murdered by a customer who she'd sold sex to, or was planning to sell sex to. But there were other possibilities. Could it have just been a random attack, or was it potentially someone she knew? Despite his tears at her funeral, her boyfriend Gordon Watson was a violent man, and not someone it was easy to warm to. There were lots of sex workers on the streets of Glasgow at the time, and with many others desperate too to support their drug habits, the rates they could charge weren't high. This meant that sometimes Jacqueline struggled to earn enough money for both of their drugs, and if she returned home with not enough money, Gordon used to beat her. Not around the face, of course, as her good looks were important to attract customers. Instead, he would burn her thighs with cigarette ends, and stamp on her stomach. This would leave Jacqueline feeling she needed to do better the next day. Had one of these attacks from Gordon gone too far and resulted in Jacqueline being killed by Gordon? The Texas didn't think so. He was her only source of income and his alibi seemed solid. But Jacqueline's eagerness to earn more money meant that she sometimes would agree to do business with men that the other workers usually would not. It was a brutal way to make a living with widespread violence as it was, but by accepting work from customers that the other women rejected, Jacqueline put herself at even more risk. Detectives spoke to other sex workers on the streets, and although most didn't talk to the police, one name kept coming up among those that did. Johnson. The man was a regular, and a violent monster who most of the workers would have nothing to do with, as they'd experience his unwillingness to pay the rates, if he paid at all, and his propensity for violence. But at this time, detectives didn't have evidence to charge anyone. There were a couple of things that could be leads. There were sightings of a black BMW car in the lay-by where her body was found at about the time of her murder. Was this connected? And they did have another piece of evidence which they hoped would lead them to the killer, 
and that was the curtain in which Jacqueline's body was wrapped. It was 108 inches by 58 inches, and made of a cotton rayon material with a mauve pink and green swirling leaf pattern. It was lined with white cotton material with blue dots, and crucially, had been homemade using a sewing machine, and detectives believed it had been hanging in the home until recently. Were these curtains the work of the killer, or his partner, or a relative? Chief Inspector Joyce said the material had been imported from Holland in 1994, and would have been easy and cheap to buy in Glasgow. In a press conference, she confirmed that material distributors and retailers would be interviewed by police, but she also appealed to the public, saying, One telephone call would let Jacqueline rest in peace. I'm appealing for people to look at their consciences. Jacqueline's family have been through hell. Someone sold this material, someone bought it, someone made up the curtains. Someone must know where this curtain has been hung, and someone must know where the other half of the curtain is. But the breakthrough they were hoping for didn't come. Detective Joyce grew increasingly frustrated by the lack of information from the public, and feared this was because Jacqueline had been a sex worker and a heroin addict. She said, Are people really saying that she deserved to die? That it's okay for some man to batter her to a pulp and snuff her out? I'm only interested in catching a killer, someone's son, husband or boyfriend, who came home late that night, probably with blood on his clothes. The violence was indescribable. So I say to anyone shielding him, who is that violence going to be turned on next? Jackie's murder was also featured on the BBC's Crime Watch programme, but again the crucial lead still didn't come through. The weeks and months passed until it was the year anniversary of Jacqueline's death. Her mum Alice spoke to the Daily Record newspaper, again appealing for any information. I appeal to mothers. Remember the bond you have with your baby from the moment it's born and imagine how it feels to have that snatched away. Alice told how she was unable to sleep at all and spend most of the day in tears. She said, it feels like it happened yesterday. Her murder will never go away and I will never come to terms with it. The first anniversary of her death was shattering. The family went up to the cemetery, laid flowers and talked about her. She was only five foot one and seven stone. He could have blown her down. He didn't need to kill her. You tend to get a bit paranoid. If you see someone staring at you, you start to think it's him. I have the most terrible nightmares about her murder but she's only about 10 years old in all of them and I'm watching as it happens. I was shocked when I learned what she was doing, but she was a really proud person and I think that's why she couldn't bring herself to tell me that she was a sex worker. From here, the days, weeks, months and years raced by until in 2001, the case was reviewed as part of a five-year cycle and further testing was carried out on items recovered at the murder scene to try to take advantage of advances in forensic technology. The police instructed further DNA tests on Jacqueline's underwear, which had been found with her body. Semen was found belonging to a local Glasgow man, George Johnson. Could this be the same Johnson that other sex workers had spoken of with such fear? 
As detectives investigated further, they found that his van was seen near where Jacqueline had been working in the early hours of the Monday morning. The ligature marks on Jacqueline's body were consistent with being caused by a collar used in bondage, something that Johnson was said to regularly enjoy, and of course a collar was found nearby. The curtain found with Jacqueline's body was similar to one which Johnson had previously had in his van. And finally, at some time after 4am on the Monday when Jacqueline went missing, Johnson had been seen behaving strangely at his house, which was not far from where Jacqueline's body was dumped. Surely the police had their man. Kitchen fitter George Johnson was arrested and denied having anything at all to do with the death of Jacqueline. He was at the time serving a three-year sentence for causing the death of 40-year-old Margaret Termini in a road accident in Paisley in 1997. The DNA that had been taken from him following the accident that saw Margaret die was the DNA that had showed his semen present on Jacqueline. He admitted using the services of sex workers on a regular basis since his wife had left him in October 1993. He said on hundreds of occasions, often in the back of his work van. He said bondage wasn't really his thing, although he admitted that he had been involved with spanking after a sex worker slapped his bottom, and he said he used a slipper or a flimsy strip of leather, which he called a bum paddle. But he denied ever using any violence against sex workers or any women. He also queried the evidence about his van, saying that he hadn't bought the van until a year after the murder. Johnson happily admitted knowing Jacqueline and told detectives how he had been having sex with her twice a week for the four months before she was killed. He said how they were friends and she regularly used to get in his van after work to chat about personal problems, saying, We were quite friendly. She was a nice lassie. If she saw me, she would give me a wave, she would jump in the van we would have a blether more often than not. But he said that the last time he saw her was at a flat in Newlands Road in Glasgow that he had rented for another sex worker. But during this encounter, when he bought sex from Jacqueline for £30, was the night before she was murdered, and that afterwards he dropped her off in the red light district in the early morning of the 23rd of June 1996. Experts said that the chances of the DNA found on Jacqueline not being Johnson's were a billion to one. But if Johnson was telling the truth, the fact that he'd spent time with her the night before her death and not on the night she was killed explained this. But Jacqueline's boyfriend had told police that she changed her underwear twice a day. If this was correct, and he was very specific on the detail, even claiming that he bought her underwear at Littlewoods in Paisley, then Johnson must be lying and he must have had the sexual contact with her on the night she had died. In which case, he surely had to have killed Jacqueline. Detectives believe this was the case. Johnson faced trial for murder at Glasgow High Court and denied the charge. He lodged a special defence of alibi and named 14 other men and three unknown men whom, he says, could have committed the crime. He also had an alibi of his own. He claimed he was at a neighbour's house at the time of the murder and this neighbour supported his alibi. After four hours of deliberation, the jury of nine women and six men 
returned with their verdict. To the surprise of many, it was not proven. When the verdict was announced, Jacqueline's mum, Alice, wept and gasped could be heard in the public gallery. Johnson, whose address was Greenock Prison, showed no emotion at all as the judge told him that he was free to leave the dock and ignored the shouts of beast in the public gallery. But he was, of course, not actually able to walk free from the court as he was still serving the sentence of causing death by careless driving. Within a year of his release from prison, Johnson was back in the news. Detectives questioned him after he sent a number of threatening messages to journalist Sam Poling, who worked for Frontline Scotland. They were initially in contact as Johnson had asked Sam about the possibility of covering the trial and the not proven verdict. But the nature of his text towards her had rapidly deteriorated. A police insider told the Sunday Mail, For several weeks she was receiving disturbing texts, some of which threatened violence against her. Some were also of a sexual nature. The phone being used was a pay-as-you-go, so the officers were unable to trace who was sending them. The breakthrough came when Sam phoned the mobile, and it was answered by Johnson, whose voice she recognised having interviewed him. As a result of this information, the officers were able to act. Johnson's house was searched, and he was interviewed around the beginning of May, and a report was sent to the Procurator Fiscal in Glasgow. It seems that when Johnson had met the journalist, he gave her a video of Jacqueline's body lying in the lay-by where the killer had left her. Jacqueline's mum, Alice, was appalled by this, saying, I'm deeply disturbed that he still has the crime scene videos of my daughter's murder and that he's been watching them and showing them to other people. It's like Jacqueline is being murdered over and over again. What kind of sick animal would want to look at videos like this? Doesn't my daughter deserve some dignity after all that has happened? Does he gloat over the images of her lying there dead? Even I don't know exactly how my daughter died. It's far too painful for me. The police source said, The fact he has this tape is extremely disturbing. It seemed that he viewed this material as some kind of trophy. These films are a vital part of police evidence that should not be in public circulation. Johnson was asked to respond to the newspaper story. He said, I gave her the film and I think she copied it. I contacted her in January at the BBC because I wanted to do a programme about the not proven verdict and I showed her some of the material I had. It took me two years to get that video and I needed it to prepare my case. It wasn't nice to watch but I had to do it. Since then I've only met her once when she returned some of the material I gave her around six weeks ago. I've never stalked her. I did send her some text messages telling her to fuck off, but that was it. I've had letters from the Procurator Fiscal asking for the video, but I don't have to hand it over. He denied being questioned by the police about his messages to the journalist, adding, They've not spoken to me. If she is making these accusations, she'd better be able to prove it in court. She'd better watch her back. What a charming man he is. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Another life taken away too soon. A young woman with hopes and dreams of a career in nursing who fell in with the wrong crowd and then took to selling sex on the streets to fund her heroin habit. And it appears that the danger she found there 
led to her being killed in such a terribly violent way. It is, I'm afraid, a story we have heard way too many times on this podcast. And as always, our thoughts are with Jacqueline's family and friends, who still have not had the closure on who killed her. The police clearly thought it was George Johnson, but the jury were not convinced enough to find him guilty. We were not in court listening to all the evidence, so though what we've heard today is enough to strongly suggest to us that the evidence should have been enough to convict, the jury did not. And so as it stands today, George Johnson left court a free man who was not responsible for the murder of Jacqueline Gallagher. Earlier this year, the police again appealed for any evidence. But as we stand today in August 2022, it seems we are no closer to finding out just who killed Jacqueline Gallagher. Unfortunately, much as I've tried, I've not been able to track down what happened to George Johnson following the events we've covered today. One other loose end to tie up is that Jacqueline's boyfriend, Gordon Watson, the man who'd introduced her to heroin, died in November 1999. Again, I've been unable to find out exactly what happened to him, but there's a good chance, I guess, that it was heroin-related. The stats for women involved in sex work are even now in 2022 horrendous. The levels of violence totally unacceptable and someone just doing their job, it wouldn't be accepted in any other workplace. It may be the oldest profession, but still, it is also one of the most deadly. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group, just search UK True Crime, and you will find over 82,000 of us ready to chat. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Not only will you find over 50 bonus episodes, but there are loads more exclusive content and competitions. You can join Patreon for as little as £1 a month and cancel at any time, not that you'll ever want to, of course. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And please join me on Thursday, this Thursday coming in London for my live show with Mike from Murder Mile and Paul, true crime enthusiast. Tickets are just £12. Get the link from the show notes here or any of my social channels. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. I'll speak to you again on Tuesday for another story from the UK's 37th most popular true crime host. Until we speak then, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.